0: web three days after the departure of the fateful lake wall caravan she was going to tell them ifair wasn't sure when she decided after tilly's accident perhaps after talking to ricky slar who could say she had at first wrestled with the idea of telling them as little of the truth as possible but finally had decided that she had taken them from what passed as their homes and brought them out here for her own purposes That meant it was time for the truth, but something gnawed at her, some feeling of guilt. There was no time for that now. She had started them down this path. It was time for answers. She sat in her carriage, Whisper and Lee sitting across from her. "'I'm going to tell you two things,' she said. "'The first is the secret reason I've brought you with me, and the second is a story of sorts.' But it is also a secret. A secret story. Something you must lock away in the back of your minds. Something important. Something special just between the three of us. She paused for a moment. She was about to continue when Tilly blurted out, I know the first thing. We're going to steal from the slate. Her voice was monotone, but her eyes sparkled. Whisper gave a scoffing laugh and then looked at Efair. His face went white when Efair smiled. "'I was curious if you'd actually figured it out, Tilly. "'Yes, we're stealing from the slate, "'and as such, from the Church of Deep Stone.' "'Whisper stood, his hands up in defiance. "'No,' he said, shaking his head. "'No, no, and no. "'Do I even need to say this? "'You don't steal from the slate. "'I have some expertise in this field. "'Have you heard of the rules of the sacrosanct? "'Have you heard the stories about how they hunt you relentlessly "'to the edges of the earth?' You might not have because the people who steal from them always regret it. If you think you understand the power of Odros, whisper, Efer said calmly. This is not a sudden decision. If you do not wish to participate, you do not need to. But first, listen to my story. Whisper seemed uncomfortable but sighed. I don't see what it will change, but fine, I'll listen. Efer sat up. She moved an upper flap of her robe, revealing two pockets directly above her heart. Each of them contained a small book. She lightly touched one and then pulled it out. Whisper's concern vanished and he seemed captivated. Wait, those are... You're a... Yver smiled. Yes, Whisper. I'm a grey eyes. I see you both have many questions. Please, let me read the story and much will be answered. Whisper sat back down and seemed like he would burst with questions. Tilly was sitting up straight and in a rare instance was paying attention. "'What's the story?' she asked. Yfair looked down at the book. "'It's mine,' she said softly and opened to the first page. Previously The Lady of the Rose Has Fled, A Murder She Did Not Commit the fateful Lakewall Caravan has left Lakewall, taking with it our trio of Tali, Whisper, and Ifair. During a high-stakes competition to secure a seat at Eero, Tali demonstrated impressive skills in bonding in use of magic. But her use of multi-bonding almost led to disaster. Yphair scolded her, but seems pleased to see Tali back after having left. Now they continue their journey beyond the wall. Chapter 7, The Seventh My story begins and ends and is encapsulated by that night under the stars with my mother and father. I have no desire to speak of any other moment in my life. It's all there. I begin and end there. But yet, I am compelled to delve outside this moment. Every word herein, I write with reluctance. If you must speak of me, speak of that night under the stars, and let them be just that, stars. They do not look down on me with prophecies or expectations. They are simply the blanket of the night, wrapped warmly around my parents and I as we laugh and tell stories. But it is here, I must admit, reluctantly, that they are not just stars. No. It would seem they speak of things. Despite the vast amount they seem to have to say, they are so strangely silent. And so I guess I should begin there. Silence. Standing there at the foot of the Path of Bonds, the air was strangely still. It is usually boisterous up there in the mountains, but it was calm that day. The silence of a snowfall is unique. Thick layers of snow had already fallen and swallowed most of the ambient noise, and I could actually hear the snow. Each small snowflake made a tiny noise as it joined the blanket on the ground. I'd never realized that you could hear snow before. Some love the silence. It is a time of peace, a time of reflection. Some fear it. It is the unspoken. It is the absence of God. It is the unknown. When my mother used to refer to us as the people of stolen stories, I was confused. How could our stories be stolen? We had so many to tell and such a zeal for telling them. Our village was a happy place for the most part. We lived far enough upland that we were considered the more acceptable type of Grey Eyes, and Odras declared us a mission instead of an enemy. Other than the grating proselytization of the church, we were left to our own devices and shielded from the violence of the lower wilds. The village was a colorful place, filled with tall, narrow homes. The air smelled of fresh-cut wood, rich foods, and spicy herbs. The homes had a quaint crookedness to them. They seemed to lean on one another for support. No single building seemed to be able to stand on its own, but as a whole, the village stood firm in all its twisting beauty. It was there, in one of those crooked little homes, I would sit and drink my favorite tea as my mother and father recited stories, poems, and even some plays. I was constantly pestering my mother to take me behind the village to the big hill with the ruins. She enjoyed our little trek up that hill nearly as much as I did. We would climb that hill, and Mother would let me run around the ruins of the Eye of Man." The Church of Deep Stone was proud of the six observatories of Odras, though only one currently remains. These observatories were one of the many ideas stolen from us millennia ago, right down to the belief in the prophecy of the stars. The Grey Eye's first observatories predated the churches by hundreds of years, but we had none remaining. Despite the large looking glass being long used for scrap metal, there were strong echoes of it still amongst the ruins. Namely, shards of glass the size of my head scattered the ground. There was an ancient phrase that had been carved into all of our observatories. It translates as The eyes of man seek the eyes of gods. So, we called our observatories the eyes of man. My mother often told me about how a sage would have lived in this eye of man, and would have told me my future. I thought this was funny, and when I'd laugh, she would always chuckle along. The people of my village also used the stones. We had a large monolith hidden deep in a cellar at the heart of the village, and I was taught how to bond to it at a young age. It was difficult, but I had something of a knack for it. Many told me I was a natural, but I thought little of that. I was also eager to learn of our other arts. I studied alchemy with my father, though I learned at even a young age that this was an endeavor filled mostly with disappointment. Despite producing none of the desired results, I never once saw my father get upset. I feel I should point out that the gray eyes are not a united nor a single people. Our connecting thread is our dabbling in alchemy and potions, whose materials are thought to be the cause of our eyes turning gray. We were first called the Grey Eyes by the Church of Deep Stone. Grouping us all together was a way to simplify their own understanding of the world. They took hundreds of different and varied groups and bunched them into one. Such a shame. Such a waste. These people had names, cultures, histories. All gone. Everything that could be locked in the Slate's vaults was. Our stories our inventions, our religions. The Church of Deepstone often laments the century-long silence of their god. They call it the Long Silence. As a child, I'd felt sad at the idea that they'd been abandoned by their god. Now, I scoff at it. What did they know of silence? Enough ruminations on things I cannot change. Let us return to that night with my family beneath the stars. That evening, there'd been another family there with us. We all sat around a fire on the outskirts of town and laughed and ate and drank and sang. The adults drank spirits, but us children had my favorite tea. We'd been visiting this family often, and I'd not been sure why at the time. I was young and naive. In retrospect, it's clear that our two families were planning a marriage, some years later, between myself and their eldest boy. I'm sure he was trying to catch my eye across the fire, but I was enraptured by the stories and songs. There was a moment of silence. My father stood awkwardly, cleared his throat, and reached into his robe. He pulled out a secret book that lived in a pocket above his heart. He'd read from this book when we were at home, but never outside it. The Grey Eyes have developed a tradition where a member of the family has a pocket inside their robe above their heart, where they keep what is called a namesake book. These books are special to the family, and should only ever be seen or read from by a member of the family. To take it out and read it in front of others is a very special thing. I had an inkling of an idea of this at the time, but did not grasp the full weight of it. I was simply excited to find out that this was a story I'd never heard before. My father cleared his throat again, took a draw on his pipe, and began. Look back a thousand years, and a thousand years again, and a thousand years again, and a thousand years again, and still you would not be far enough back. The land is shattered, destroyed. It smolders from birth and is ruled by those kindred of sorrow. The sovereigns. These sovereigns are not men, but great creatures. Some call them gods, other beasts. There is only one thing I will say of them. He paused. They are large and they are glorious. He turned to my mother and winked, a joke lost on me at the time, but I still think of the way she laughed as she blushed and smacked his arm. I'd laugh too. My father continued. Most had a semblance of creatures we know, owls, badgers, wolves, turtles, but their visage and their colors were unique and strange. They stand as tall as a house, and are as cunning as they are frightening. During the cooling of the land, people did not fight for kingdom or banner, but for these creatures. We named them the Sovereigns, for we could not understand the names they gave themselves. Three of the sovereigns who dwelt in the land called Null Kept warred constantly. There was the winged serpent tarar on the bear with golden eyes in the shell of a tortoise, Malice, and the great wolf, Shesha. The serpent, tarar on ruled over our ancestors and fought well for us, but the attacks were relentless, and tarar Onrar rar tired. The sovereign realized, but it knew its enemies would take advantage of its slumber. For when a sovereign rests, it rests for years or even ages. Now, there was a woman named Lamaka. Lamaka was not the smartest, strongest, nor wisest of her clan, but she was the bravest. She noticed that Tarar-Anrar tired and asked what she could do to help. Tarar-Anrar thought and said, Take of me a scale, and make from it a shield. With this shield, my power will protect you. So Lamaka did. The serpent rested, and Lamaka practiced with the great shield every day. Her arms grew thick, and the shield became light. When the enemy attacked, she rode out with the shield, and the attacks were rebuffed. She fended off many armies, but after a time, the power of the shield waned, and tarar rar was roused to fight. Tarar Onrar fought fiercely, but again wearied. This time the serpent instructed Lamaka to take two scales and fashion them into swords. She was to wield one and give the other to a companion. Lamaka brought the scales to the master smith of her settlement, Barlow, and he fashioned them as Tarar Onrar asked. But Lamaka did not do as she was told. Her arms were now strong from hoisting the great shield for so long. So she took both swords, one in each hand. With both blades, she fought many battles and won them all. After a while, she no longer fought to survive. She fought to conquer. When the serpent woke, it saw the expanse of Lamaka's land, and it wept. "'Why did you not listen?' Tarar on Rar asked. "'You have shown us to be too strong. There is restraint in the accountability of two, but instead you have made yourself a tyrant. Our enemies will crash upon us as a great wave, drowning our lands in blood. Lamaka wept, for she saw now that the armies of the great wolf Shesha and the golden-eyed bear Malice marched together. What can I do? Lamaka asked. Take of me three scales, Tararan-Ra responded. "'Place them on your pillars of stones. "'From them draw on my power. "'To do this, I must ask of you, your soul. "'For this you will surely perish in this form, "'but we shall become companions. "'You the lesser, but us the greater.' "'And so Lamaka did as she was told. "'When the armies arrived, she led the village in battle. "'With her swords, shield, and the power of Tarar unrar "'the battle was never lost.' The opposing armies managed to sing a song of stone and trap the great serpent, but they then realized that through Lamaka, the serpent's influence still protected the people. They captured Lamaka and slew her, but somehow the protection remained. And so our people fight on against the armies of the sovereigns, but the power of Terar on Rar and Lamaka holds them at bay. He finished the story with a bow, and we all clapped. There were more songs and stories, and then the other family left. My father, my mother, and I stayed looking up at the stars, still telling stories and laughing. And that is where you still find me, under those stars reflecting on that tale, and injuring the warmth of my mother's hand running through my hair, and my father's baritone singing a song. But the stars silently deny this. Despite Lemaka's alleged sacrifice, our enemies were not held at bay. Only a few weeks after that night, the Cardinal of War visited our village. Cardinals had visited our mission before, but the Cardinal of War was special. In terms of power and influence, he was second only to the Seydun. He listened to our performers, ate our food, and slept in our beds. Most villagers didn't even like the Church of Deep Stone, but still felt honored by the visit. Shortly after his departure, the church's opinion of us changed. To this day, I can only speculate why. But we were declared dangerous, and their forces descended on us. We knew of the constant warring in the Lower Wilds, but never had experienced it ourselves. When my father heard that only one more caravan would be departing from the Lower Wilds, he became despondent. A day later, he told me I was going to be a mage. My own excitement drowned out what I now realized was his mourning. He and my mother explained that they'd paid a mage to take me secretly to Eero. Apparently, my potential was greater than I'd known, and the mages were more than happy to accept me. In hindsight, I assume my parents used the coin saved for my marriage. The first thing they bought me was a nice fresh set of robes for my travels. They also gave me a large serving of my favorite tea, as well as some equipment to grow the plant myself out of small pots. I thought this silly, but did enjoy the idea of having a small slice of home there with me in the cold mountains of Iro. I couldn't understand why my parents cried so much when they loaded me onto that cart. I'll be back, I kept saying. I'll be back. When they hugged me, Mother slipped a large chunk of starred opal into one of my hands, and Father slipped our namesake book into the other. "'This new robe has a pocket above your heart,' Mother whispered. "'Keep the book safe there,' Father followed up. "'It was then I understood. "'They expected to die. "'I couldn't process the reality of this, and I wailed. "'I honestly cannot remember the words exchanged between us at the time. "'All I know is that after some time I was riding away towards the caravan, "'my eyes red, and my parents watching me leave. "'They did die, I assume.' I went back, as promised. It was many years later, and there was nothing left of the village, except the eye of man, which was now even more decrepit than before. I found no signs of their remains, nor could I find any sign of their survival. I know they are gone. But on that day of departure, riding away in that wagon, I would not accept their death. I swore I would go to Eero, become a great mage, return to see my family, and liberate my people from the oppressive grips of the church." I accomplished one of those. The second is now impossible. Perhaps I might accomplish the third. The journey was lonely, but it was far eclipsed by the loneliness I felt at Eero. The only thing that drew me through that dark trek across the land was a small spark of hope. I was truly excited to become a mage. You can see the mountains of Eero for miles before you actually arrive, but the basin sneaks up on you. Eero Basin sits nestled at the bottom of the mountain pass and appears as you crest a hill out of the forest of the web. Something felt familiar about it, like seeing a long-lost family member who bears similar features to your own. The wooden city was constructed around the water of the basin and stood on stilts. Each building seemed to tumble over one another like spiders fleeing a predator. Despite the stilts, they appeared sturdy, well-engineered, and they were incredibly busy. Eero Basin was the busiest city I'd ever seen. There were more merchants selling their wares than people in my entire village. Longboats glided across the still waters of the basin, and songs and shouts of merrymaking could be heard from them as you neared. We took a longboat across and began the trek up the mountain path. It was well-engineered and well-worn. It did not have the same impeccable designs as the roads of the church, but it was impressive. The campus of the school itself was sprawling in a mix of very ancient and very modern buildings. My first order of business was to plant the seeds my parents had given me. The second was to study. I stormed the library, asking for all sorts of books I thought would be connected to my classes. My requests were met with looks of confusion and wariness. I realized my terminology must be different from that of the mages. I relented and waited for my classes. I was filled with dread during my first class. It became abundantly clear that the issue was not simply terminology. I understood parts of what was being said and was picking up on concepts fast enough. The problem was that I was hearing things contrary what I'd been taught my entire life. The whole of the power of the world is contained by stones within stones. I heard this over and over and over again. But what of alchemy? What of potions? What of the sovereigns? I would ask. And they would laugh. I hadn't realized I was stubborn until those first months at Eero. A normal person might have relented in their ramblings, allowing themselves to be taught, but I argued, bickered, and debated. During that first semester, I made a bad name for myself. Time and time again, I was told of stones within stones. The node stones presented a logical and nearly scientific answer for all strange happenings of the world. It honestly would have been easier were I simply religious. The consortium viewed members of the Church of Deepstone with sympathy, believing their faith misguided. They viewed my beliefs as a perversion of their own, a strange mix between the arcane and the spiritual, and it was not tolerated. And so I was alone. My comforts were few. My plants bloomed and I had my tea. Some nights, in fits of loneliness, I would pretend the plants were minstrels, performing the songs of our village. I also had our namesake book, I couldn't read whatever dialect it was written in, but I would still pore over the book every night. Some words were similar to Audracian, of which I knew a smattering, and others were in old Eskian dialects, which was my native tongue. I stumbled through the pages, looking for anything I could recognize. Alast, Garkum, Morkodum I didn't know what any of it meant, but I would repeat these words out loud to myself. My saving grace in that first year was that I truly was exceptional. The monolith known as the First Bond is contained in a central building at Ero. All students are required to bond to it. I outpaced my classmates in any applied use of the First Bond. Duels were a common practice, and I was known as a force to be reckoned with. I am sure this is where stories of my fiery side began. My excellence turned some heads, and I was lucky enough to have a few teachers take note of me. Some even offered guidance. A mage of the third named Slar taught me the laws of the natural world. A mage of the fifth and historian named Flyleaf filled in the patchier sections of my knowledge and helped me to see the world outside of fables and legends. As I learnt, my insistence on fighting for the beliefs of my people dwindled. The phrase, stones within stones, became a steady beat to which I marched. This new rhythm drowned out the songs of my strange minstrel plants. I stopped reading my namesake book. I stopped drinking my tea. I set the stories my father had told me aside and studied. And then suddenly, one day, they were no longer the beliefs of my people. They were the beliefs of the grey eyes. I was focused. The name I'd made for myself slowly changed from bad to good. Rumors began that I would take the second bond. I fueled these rumors by both spreading them and studying like mad. To take the second, you must prove yourself fully capable in both book and magic. I was proficient in magic, but in the books I was lacking. I was in the archives almost more than the archivists. And so after only a year, I came to the foot of the path of bonds to take the second. If you make your way through the campus at Eero, walking up towards the mountain, you will find a large building which is home for many higher-ranked consortium mages. Its main floor is a hall filled with paintings, a large hearth, and a massive, heavy, iron-bound door leading into the mountains. Through this door, you will find an alcove shielded by the tall rocks on either side. Winding far, far up this alcove is a stone pathway, This pathway winds back and forth, back and forth, each winding section leading to a stone building. There are seven of these buildings on the pathway. These seven buildings each hold a monolith. Along with the monolith contained inside the school, this consists of the seven bonds, and the top one being the eighth bond, which is reserved only for the highest members of the consortium. Each of these monoliths has some sort of trial you must accomplish to be allowed to bond to it. Some are arbitrary, acquiring a rare feather from a bird in the farthest reaches of Eskia. And some are taxing ordeals, such as presenting your own schematics for a configuration of an entirely new spell. I was to ascend the path only a short way, enter the first building, and take the second bond. The requirement here was simply a recommendation from a professor, which I had received from Ricky Slar. I stared down at those orange stones in my hand. Staystone, they were commonly called. I'd known their name came from their utility in allowing mages to stay bonded to multiple monoliths at once, but I'd never known how. When I'd heard it was by cutting into your back and placing the stones there, I'd been scared. I'd seen it only a few times at Eero. Small orange pieces of stone jutting out from people's bare backs, white scars surrounding the small orange object. These small stones had so many uses, but this was one of their more common purposes amongst the mage's consortium. So small, and yet they granted you access to so much power. After a while, I stopped dreading this macabre grafting and craved it, craved to be connected to that second bond, To become stronger. A small crowd formed at the bottom of the Path of Bonds. The day I was set to ascend to the second, I relished the claps and cheers as I began my ascent. I could still hear the clapping when they cut my back, but it was drowned out by the thrumming in my ears when the physician said I wouldn't stop bleeding. More bandages were brought, but the bleeding continued. I was rushed to the infirmary. Their healing magics were able to save me. The exchange and number of mages it took was astounding. They kept me there and studied me. They saved samples of my blood. Eventually, they told me that my body lacked the ability to properly mend itself. When cut, the blood flowed freely and did not clot. They said this was rare, but something that they had seen before. Often the afflicted died young from simple cuts or scrapes. I knew I'd scraped my knees many times as a child and that they'd always scabbed, or so I'd thought. They told me I was wrong. It wasn't possible. As I'd learned to do, I reluctantly realized they spoke the truth, or at least a shape of it. This was a simple setback, I was sure of it. There had to be an answer provided by stones within stones that would quickly have me bonded to the first and second bond, but there was not. It is here I developed my obsession. I didn't search for answers, I crusaded for them. The great mages consortium claimed to know all things and yet this simple condition stumped them? I stormed the libraries again, this time equipped with a base knowledge of magic and reinforced with a proper vocabulary. My thirst for knowledge was not quenched. I felt each book was salt water, and I grew parched and desperate. In my search, I became lost. I was no longer looking for answers to my condition, but for something else, and I could not say what. Where before I had seen the clean and logical reasoning of the consortium, I began to see something else. A barren land populated with many trees but many more stumps. But what were those stumps? Where were the trees that were cut down? What was the knowledge lost? I found silence, but I could hear the echoes of past truths. One day, I realized that not only did I not understand the answers I was seeking, I didn't even know the questions. What was I searching for? A new truth, a cure to my condition? A simple reference to the world not being as it seemed, or as the consortium told me it should be, I did not know. The trees that were missing were all locked away in the vaults of the slate. I knew it then, and I know it now. Whatever answers I seek are most likely deep in the belly of Holy Throne. But for some reason, I could not stop. I had a melody stuck in my head I'd never hummed. I craved the taste of a dish I'd never eaten. I yearned for stories I'd never heard. Somehow, I spent a year in that library. And then the money ran out. The school at Eero is not free. When you take the second bond, you can begin earning income. Without this, I was only spending. I often oscillate between shame and surety for this next part. I sold my family's namesake book. I was desperate and at this point it served no purpose. It brought me no comfort and I could not understand the contents. This bought me time, but not enough. I was both literally and figuratively woken from the stupor of my search when I was notified by the bursars that my account was bare. I'd been sleeping with my face in a book in a dark section of the archives. I was without a home. In a strange way, this felt fitting to me. Flyleaf offered me aid, but I refused. There was some feeling of truth in my leaving Eero. I'd always felt alone. Now, I was. There was no guise of belonging to any group. I was on my own. I didn't know where I'd go. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know why I left. But something drew me into the wilds. You would think I would have returned to my home and searched for my parents. But a part of me, even then, knew they were dead. I eventually joined a mercenary group. I'd stayed connected to the first bond, despite the taxing effect accrued by remaining bonded at this distance without the help of a staystone. This proved wise. It was in a moment of desperation when I used a configuration for protection that drew the attention of the mercenaries. They offered me work, and I balked at such an offer. A night of hunger changed my mind. I'm still shocked at how quickly I took their ways in exchange for a bit of coin. I cannot describe this transformation. This group was the opposite of welcoming. They were insular and allowed me to wallow in my isolation. We fought as a group, but survived as individuals. There was little trust to be found, and that was explicitly known amongst all the members. It is strangely one of the more honest relationships I've ever had. They had a monolith of their own in the traditional grey eyes fashion, meaning it seemed to have no god shard and used strange piping and supercooled or superheated water. I knew from my time at Eero that this method did not truly work, and there must be some other way but I never investigated. I bonded to it, and the exchange of the second bond left me bedridden for days. But I did not relent. I held the second bond for months. I will admit that joining mercenaries with a blood condition was a mistake, but it was not fatal. It was close at times, but I managed to get myself mended. I protected myself well and went into combat with strategy. It was a grey morning when I found the book. The grey was offset by the hazy orange of the burning carriage, but I was not looking at either. I was staring at the contents of a lockbox, coins, a jeweled dagger, and a book. When the group asked me what I found, I said I'd found coins and a dagger. I secretly slipped the book into the pocket above my heart. I'd only peeked inside for a moment, but what I'd read gave rise to that thirst for knowledge. I again craved that melody, that meal, that story. I could not read the text. It was a similar dialect to my namesake book. But scribbled in the margins were notes in Odrassian. I saw only a few of these scribbled thoughts, but each grew my thirst. Reel, Great wolf, a vague description, but accounts seem trustworthy. Sovereign's not myth. Investigate connection to cataclysm. Alchemy's strange effects seem to work here? Return with Roverin and investigate. Slight sensors seem to contain more than simply smoke. Who is the author of death? I left secretly the next day. I'd found no answers, but my search began again. I still could not be sure what I sought. I stayed connected to the Mercenaries Monolith. Maintaining the bond was taxing, but the tax seemed to ease every day. They chased me, but I was wily. Was it months? Was it years? The timeline blends together for me. I was both aimless and relentless in my quest. I learned much in my travels. I made my way into Odras, but found information as scarce there as had been reported. I journeyed to Snowy Vocaster that shining free city, but found the mage houses and merchant generals more closed off than myself. There was information there, but I had not the coin to acquire it. I ended up in Nalkept, exploring the three great walls. I had never truly appreciated the expansiveness of the realms contained inside until I set foot inside them. The one part of this I am most proud of is that I retrieved my namesake book. When I returned to Eero, it was tucked away in the shop where I'd sold it, I paid much to get it back, but for sentimental reasons, it was worth it. The remaining money I had, I spent on thread and needle. I sewed a second pocket so I could wear both books above my heart. I do not know why I did this, but I did. Of all the danger I'd encountered, I can most clearly remember the fear that one of my classmates would see me. The failed mage gone crazy and wandering the world. Most of them would have taken a third by then. And I was destitute. But my studies had continued. I learned much during my travels. I learned to live. I learned to lie. I learned to fight. Eventually, my wanderings drove me to those mountains. The mountain range where Erosit stretches far into Eskia. They are ancient and treacherous places. I'd learned that the treachery worked to my advantage. These mountains did not know the all-consuming crusade of the slate. If there were ancient civilizations that had lived in those mountains, their knowledge remained there and intact, or so I hoped. The cold was piercing in a way you cannot understand, and only a week I came closer to death than I'd ever been. I saw nothing abnormal, but I was plagued by a sense of dread, fear, and superstition that I cannot explain. I pray I never return to those mountains, and I wish them upon no one else. Despite the wind, snow, and cold, there were silent days. It was on one of those silent days when I knew I would die. A part of me had been glad when my feet went numb it meant a respite from the cold i looked down and noticed the trail of blood i'd clearly stepped on something somewhere and sliced through my boot and into my foot i reached out to the bonds i still maintained but i was too far away to get a good exchange i wrapped it in cloth but the blood soaked through so i sat there in the snow watching my blood seep across the clear white and listening To the silence. The world grew dark despite the bright sun. I thought of my parents, of course, but found myself contemplating the long silence. All those years that the faithful of the Lord of Deepstone had no voice of their God, heard nothing of the divine. Was it like this? A sense of impending doom in the clear and calm dark found me, and the lord of deep stone remained silent. A familiar and cloying odor of herbs and poultices filled my nose and I gagged. I opened my heavy eyelids and searched for the source of the smell before realizing it was me bandages covered my hands feet and legs each oozing a strange yellow and black liquid i should have felt ecstatic to discover i was not dead but instead i found myself shaking my head and reflecting on how misguided the teachings of the gray eyes were still believing in the powers of a simple plant rubbed on the skin i knew i was among the gray eyes the word felt foreign to me are you awake I turned to see an old man dressed in furs and covered in small trinkets sitting several feet away from me at a desk. He had a jovial look, long gray hair, and a pair of looking glasses with strange modifications to them. Multiple lenses seemed to be attached to the frame and were tinted with various colors. It appeared he could quickly change the lenses at will by moving a small set of levers on the glasses. He was dressed in simple clothes, but wore a fur vest that was covered in a multitude of small vials and trinkets. He appeared like some sort of arcane peddler who might appear in a story. He was crushing up a sort of dried flower and he jingled as he worked. He put the crushed petals into a black cloth and poured water from a kettle over them. The liquid that came out was purple. He brought it over, handed it to me, and I recoiled from the smell you've used a lot of exchange and i haven't been able to get you to swallow more than a drop of this in your sleep you need to replenish he said i almost laughed aloud at the typical gray eyes belief in herbs and alchemy but i relented i drank i gagged Oi, my reaction is well the man said with a chuckle and a grimace i find it works best if you do it in one big gulp i nodded and downed the entire cup i nearly vomited he chuckled and walked back to his workplace, returning with a second cup. The odor of this one was familiar and nostalgic. It was my tea. The tea i drank with my parents and grown in my rooms at Eero. I reached up and accepted it. "'This you drank some of. I assume simply from familiarity,' he said. "'A strange man. This drink must have been a common treat that parents gave their children amongst the grey eyes.' Or how else would he have known to make it? Him making me drink it in my sleep was strange, but I sensed no intent of malice from him. I sat up and took in my surroundings as I drank. A pile of furs enveloped me in warmth and beckoned me to lay back down and close my eyes for just a moment longer. I was tucked at the bottom of a large stone statue of some sort. The room was massive, domed and filled with a cavalcade of items and books. In the center of the room was a gargantuan device I'd never seen before, but recognized instantly. A looking glass pointed at the ceiling. There was a clear crack where the dome could be opened, allowing the looking glass to scan the night sky. Carved into the stone above it were words I knew well. The eyes of man seek the eyes of gods. An eye of man still stands, I said stupefied. "'The old man chuckled. "'Just barely. "'I am its ever-vigilant keeper, "'fitting as I am a sage, but just barely. "'I am Yon. "'Tell me, young woman of stolen stories, "'what is your name, "'and what brings you to this desolate, "'forsaken, and cursed shrine of the stars?' "'By instinct, I almost denied being a Grey Eyes. "'It had been so long since I'd thought of myself as such. "'How did you know I was a Grey Eyes?' I asked.' Yawn nodded to my badly weathered robe, sitting on a chair nearby. I apologize for the situation, but I did need to get you into a state of undress. Your namesake fell out. I I did not read it, I promise. I chuckled. It was typical that a gray eyes would be more concerned about having read my namesake than about seeing me naked. I noticed I was now dressed in a simple pair of homespun clothes. They fit me loosely, but covered me. I thought for a moment of how to describe what had led me here. I decided to tell him the simplest form of my convoluted and confusing search. My name is Yfer. I seek the truth. I seek answers for questions I don't even know. Aye, well you've come to the right place. I have much truth. I have some history, that which was not stolen, and I have many, many questions. "'I, however, have no answers. "'There are no more answers written for us sages. "'Only those that were there and have remained there. "'The Age of Stars is done. "'The Church calls it the Long Silence. "'We call it Morcoda Melkil. "'I know that word,' I said, now a bit stronger and able to sit up. "'I read it many times. "'What does it mean?' "'Yan's face, which had been quite mischievous and jovial, "'went dark at this question.' It means the beginning of the death. And what is dying? I asked. Ah, Jan said with a dark chuckle. It seems you found your first question. I didn't betray my confusion. Fatigue, injury, and such a sudden change in my locale had left me disoriented. The conversation was not helping. Yon got up and began to putter about the room, tidying here and there, glancing at notes strewn across his desk, changing the different lenses through which he viewed the world. "'You've been in and out for three days,' he said. "'I made sure you had water and your tea. I assume your supply ran out. I applied some remedies to your cuts and have treated your frostbite. I knew that time was most likely what had sped my healing, not the grey-eyed pseudo-medicine.'" Yon paused, seemed thoughtful, and turned to me. Five he said. I raised my eyebrows in confusion, and he smiled. I will predict in my sagely wisdom that it will be five questions until you start finding answers. You found your first one. Four to go. He brought me a bowl of some sort of savory stew, and I quickly devoured it. When he bent over to take my bowl, his furs fell to the side, revealing his bare back. Embedded there were three orange stones, surrounded by small white scars. "'You're a mage,' I blurted out. "'He looked at me, grinned, and held up three fingers. Two questions, three to go,' he said. "'Yes and no. "'I have taken my bonds, sure. "'I studied at Iro. "'Well, I listened at Iro. "'Something never sat right with me. "'I felt I was forgetting as much as I was learning, "'forgetting the things my nan taught me in her kitchen, "'forgetting the stories of our people. "'So I went out searching.' But for what? I could not say. It was like trying to hum a tune stuck in your head. But you don't know the melody. I finished quietly. Yawn nodded. I can't say I ever found that melody. But I found the stars. And the stars found you. And you are here. This time, I did scoff involuntarily. I blushed. I apologize, I said. It seems... I still have some bad habits I formed during my time studying at Eero. No offense taken, Jan replied. He stared at me thoughtfully. A fellow Grey Eyes and a fellow Mage. Peculiar. You have no staystone in your back. How do you maintain your bonds? With great difficulty, I replied. And it is useless in the mountains. I cannot use even a single configuration." Thank goodness your mystical stars brought you to me. I realized my words sounded condescending. Jan looked off and chuckled quietly, shaking his head. Mystical? No. Spiritual? No. But you must admit it is fortuitous. He held up a page. A word written in the old tongue was in the middle, with scribbled phrases and lines filling the page, all of them leading to or pointing at that central word, He pointed to the word. "'That there? That is you. It is a word I did not know, but now I know. It means e he said. I stood up and wobbled over to where he stood, nursing my tea. I looked at the other pages strewn across the large desk. Many words and lines filled the pages, seeming the ramblings of either a madman or a genius.' I wrote these ages ago, and some of these messages drew me out there into the mountains the day I found you. Your name is splayed across the stars, he said, grinning. Do you truly believe the future is written in the stars? I asked. Jan held up three fingers. He then scratched his beard and seemed lost in thought. There are stories written in the stars. What we do with those stories is up to us. Some are likely to pass. Some are warnings. It is hard to describe. These stories mirror our own, so deciphering them is difficult. I have something that might actually help on that front, I said. I walked over to my robe, stumbling slightly, and pulled out my two books. Jan blushed furiously. Your namesakes, we've only just met and it would be. You saved my life. I said, knowing that simply allowing another to see your namesake so soon after meeting would be considered an unseemly thing by most grey eyes. We are blood, because I owe you mine. Read them. Yon hesitated, but his eyes shone with curiosity. I handed him the book I'd found in the wilds first. There are notes written in Odrasian in this one. It seems to speak mostly of the Sovereign's. An interesting topic," Yon replied, taking the book and leafing through it. They largely are absent from the world now, but they are mentioned much in the writings I found on Morcota Melkil. He paused, furrowing his brows as he read the notes. He hesitantly closed the book and looked at the cover. "Where did you say you got this book?" he asked. "I stole it," I replied. He nodded grimly. "Well." We've had enough stories stolen from us, only fair we should be allowed to steal some ourselves. This is not from the Slate, though. A strange tome for a private collection. He fell silent as he read. I began to feel uncomfortable with the theft of the book still hanging in the air and tried to make conversation. I was not aware that the Sovereigns had a connection to any sort of prophecy, I said. Jan looked up, peering at me above his strange spectacles. They are omens of Mor'koda Mel'Kil. Interesting, was all I could manage to say. The skepticism in me was not easily overpowered. So, you believe in the Sovereigns? Jan looked up at me again. I do, he said. He then grinned, held up four fingers, and dove back into the book. I let him read for a moment and enjoyed my tea. The bitter yet floral taste brought back waves of memories. I felt those memories might envelop me and bring me sobbing to the floor of that observatory. And so instead, I decided to purposefully ask my fifth question as a distraction. It is common that Grey Eye's children drink this tea? I asked. Jan looked up at me and was clearly more confused than ever. He seemed to formulate his response, starting and stopping to talk a few times. Slowly, a look of realization washed over his face. You don't believe any of it, do you? The potions, the herbs, the alchemy, the sovereigns, the prophecies, he said. I sighed and shook my head. I'm sorry, I don't. I've searched the wide world and seen no evidence of any of these claims. I do not buy wholeheartedly into the Consortium's belief of the whole of the power of the world being contained by stones within stones. But I have never seen any truth to the claims of the Grey Eyes either. Jan began to laugh. He smacked his head and clutched a piece of paper to his chest like a cherished heirloom. "Oh, glory, the blood. That's why so much spoke about the blood." I cocked my eyebrow. He pointed to my tea. "You don't know." I was getting annoyed by his strange ways of dancing around topics. "I guess not," I said hotly. "Efa, <laughs> dear mage, dear gray eyes." "'I am about to change your whole life. "'How's your foot?' "'I prepared a witty retort, but then paused. "'My foot! "'It had been gushing blood in the snow, and I'd been dying. "'The memory returned, buffeting me with a reprise of fear. "'I scrambled to my knees and pulled off the bandage, "'expecting to see blood gushing forth. First, I was relieved. "'Then, I was shocked. "'Then, I was confused.' I found only a neatly stitched wound and a healthy dark scab. I stared in amazement. How? I asked, Jan grinned and nodded to the tea in my hands, and it all fell into place. The tea. My parents had given me that tea since I was a child. Every day I drank it. I drank it at Eero, but stopped eventually, and then I'd done my bonding and had bled I had scabbed as a child, but it was because I drank the tea. I'd always had the condition. Our people just knew the cure. Herblore provided an answer. That is why my parents were insistent on me growing the tea myself. They probably had attempted to describe my condition to me as I left, but I did not understand my grief. When Jan saw me bleeding in the snow and noticed I was not healing as normal, he'd given me the tea knowing it would help my condition. That also explained his accurate but bizarre insistence that I'd had the tea before. It all made sense. My hands shook while I looked down. I felt like weeping, like jumping up and down, like singing, like screaming. For one thing, for one singular thing, I'd found an answer. Jan clearly noticed my realization and smiled. I told you you'd get an answer after five questions. Now, how about some answers of my own? He looked hungrily at the other book in my hand, the book my father had read from all those years ago. I stepped forward and gladly gave it to him. He opened the first page and raised an eyebrow. Oh, Tararanrar. He looked up and switched his spectacle settings as he grinned. You've seemed preoccupied, so I'm going to give you something close to an answer, but closer to a question. I cannot tell you that there is a great winged serpent that is trapped in stone somewhere, but I can tell you... "'to look at the structure behind you a little more closely.' "'I turned. "'Since I'd woken, I'd never truly looked at what was to my back in the room. "'My eyes started at the base and slowly lifted to the domed ceiling, "'taking in the construct I'd been nestled against.' I drank in the details and fought off shock. I'd expected something like a statue, but instead, a monolith towered proudly above me. Its configurations foreign and unique. It was inscrutable, completely unlike anything I'd learned at Eero. And at the top were three giant scales that could only be described as having come from a massive serpent. My mind raced back to those words from the story. Take of me three scales. Place them on your pillars of stone. From them, draw on my power. To do this, I must ask of your soul. My focus was broken by Yvonne's strangled shout from behind me. I turned and saw him holding my book open and staring white-faced at a page. He frantically began rummaging through the pages sprawled across his desk. What is it? I asked, stepping closer. He mumbled something to himself as he continued his search. Then he found it. The page he'd shown me earlier, which was allegedly my name. My skin went cold, and I took a step back. The skeptic in me scoffed, but some part of me knew that this was nothing to scoff at. The page in the book was almost identical to his own scrawled notes. Even the lines were mirrored. Except where on his notes my name was scrawled, there was a different word in the book." His voice was so quiet, nearly silent, almost a prayer, a supplication to everything and nothing. He looked at me, his eyes filled with hope and terror, and he whispered, Marko de Melchior, Marko de Melchior. I stood at the foot of the Path of Bonds. It was years since I'd attended the school, and those at the university who remembered my name were a buzz about my return. I arrived and proceeded quietly to the Path of Bonds. In my time in the archives, i had also read the due process required for taking each bond. There was no crowd this time, just a very confused attendant. You're here to take the seconds? he asked me. I closed my eyes and drank in the silence. Some fear the silence, some love it. I have learned to listen to it. In the silence I have learned much. The omissions speak to me. Our people's stories are silent. It is a silence of persecution and of perseverance. The Lord of Deep Stone is silent, and the position of the mouth of God remains vacant. In that silence, there is a strange sort of compassion. There is always a glimmer of hope that he is there, still watching, still planning, still caring. I have never been partial to this silence, but I have seen the calming effect it has on others. And then there is the silence of the stones. Yes, they are silent too. The stones are uncaring, cruel, calculating. They care nothing for our lives, our desires, and there is no guise that they do. As I died on that mountain, all three silences surrounded me, but the silence of the stones was the worst. But it was the silence I needed. In my journeys, I'd learned much, but I'd also been slowly acquiring things, physical objects, a notebook to sketch my ideas for configurations, a feather from a rare bird in Eskia, a piece of black root from a tree in the lower wilds. I was there for more than just the second bond. I climbed that mountain. the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. The consortium were astounded that I completed all criteria, that I had acquired all the items they desired and knew all the lore. It had never happened before that someone had taken every single bond in one day. But it was not forbidden. I am now the highest rank you can achieve outside the Synod. Since taking those bonds, I've worked for the Consortium, but this has been so that I might pursue my own questions. The caravans are my new home, traveling around the lands. I again have made a name for myself, but this is one I have spoken into existence. None know my true purpose I look for the melodies that others dare to hum Melodies of ancient beasts Strained powers and cataclysms I find mostly silence But also echoes And so I become what I am today Efer of the seventh bond Consortium mage Grey eyes A star in the sky that is connected to the beginning of the death Mercuda Melchione Or am I? I tell you? My story begins and ends and is encapsulated by that night under the stars with my father and mother. I've told you my tale with reluctance. The stars say they have plans for me, for others, but yet they are silent. So listen to me. The stars do not tell prophecies, not truly. They are a blanket in the night sky covering my family and I. When the story finished, Ifeer put the book down, she did not seem emotional, but pensive. Tilly also seemed pensive. Whisper seemed flabbergasted, astounded. T'Li broke the silence. Why was it so poorly written? She asked. Whisper nearly fell off his seat, but he fair chuckled and shook her head. Tali shrugged. It just seemed, uh, whiny. Tali, Whisper said, his eyes begging her to stop and avoid confrontation. T'Li sighed. Anyway, thank you for reading to us. She paused and then said, So, does this make us... "'Family?' ifair smiled a thin smile. "'As you may have noticed, "'I do not buy into all the tales and beliefs of my people, "'but there are shades of truth to them all. "'In a sense, yes, I am making you my family, "'something like a family, "'but I am doing so because I am also making you accomplices.' "'If we agree,' Whisper said, his face firm. You have to tell us this genius plan before we agree to help. Yfer smiled. Let us conclude the thoughts of my writing. There are shades of truth to many tales, many ideas thought strange in the world. There is knowledge about this, but it is ancient and largely lost. There was a great disaster at some point, and there are stories that one will happen again. I am not heroic, I am not out to save the world, but I seek answers about these things. Along with that, I simply look to find long-lost knowledge. There are prophecies that seem to strangely trace back to me. They speak of another cataclysm, of the beginning of the death, Morkoda Melkil, of sovereigns, and I believe none of them, at face value. But there are shades of truth. The slate are the final part of my search. The amount of knowledge they hoard is staggering. Ifeer paused and considered how to word her next part. And have the unique ability to lead to more information. Oh, Talese said quietly. Oh, the maps. We're stealing the maps. Ifeer smiled. Yes, we're stealing the maps. The slate fear some parts of the world but their roverin have mapped them take it from a person who has wandered these lands who's been lost in the web without a map they are impossible to traverse but with those maps i can find things long lost things untouched by the slate there are ancient tombs in these woods palaces long lost in mountains even rumors of an entire ocean filled with islands underground those maps are key. Now, don't think I'm taking you with me to the most dangerous parts of the continent without proper training. But once you are done with your training at Eero, you may join me. Whisper shook his head, clearly still not convinced. I appreciate this and all, but it's still too dangerous. I know you know a lot, but I'm telling you, the rules of the sacrosanct are not to be trifled with. Ifeira was about to speak when Tilly cut in. "'Don't you see? The whole point of this is we aren't going to get caught.' "'Once they notice, we'll be caught,' Whisper said firmly. To Lee frowned. "'Why do you think I'm here? "'We aren't going to get caught "'because the slate will never know they were stolen from.' Whisper seemed confused, then lost in thought. And then his eyes lit up. "'Of course. It's simple.' "'I steal from the rolling vault. "'The only time they ever open those "'is if they need to read the maps "'and, and find a new route, "'but they, they travel these routes so much they, "'they never need to look at the maps.' "'T'Li reads the maps "'and what she can of the books, "'memorizing them. "'We break into the vault a second time "'before arrival at Eero, "'replacing all the items, "'the information now safely into Lee's head. "'And the slate never even know "'they were stolen from.' Efer finished. "'And you are right.' I've planned this much, and I have many pieces in place already. We will not be relying solely on Tlee. I will, of course, be transcribing some of the works and copying others into my own books. But it is best to leave as few records as possible, so we will use T'Li. Now, the execution, like the plan itself, is really quite simple. And so, Yfer laid out her plan. But in her head, she could not help but feel guilty. Something gnawed at her. Why had she brought Talion Whisper into this? She did truly care for the two students, despite only their short time together. There was something special about the pair. She put little weight on many grey-eyes practices, but reading from her namesake book, she'd meant that. She could have simply told them she was looking for ancient and eldritch knowledge instead of reading them that tale. But what she'd neglected to mention was that part of Morkota Melkil hinged on her. She constantly reminded herself that she put little weight on these prophecies, but she could not help but search these mysteries. Something still drove her, something she could not explain, but there was also something she could. Like she'd written in the book, there in the mountains, she'd known she would die. It just wasn't then. According to the prophecy, it was ten. Days from today. Markota Melkil. Markota Melkil. Thank you for listening. Everything you hear in this show is created by me, Adam Ganong. Every word written, every note played. If the work I am doing here has brought you some joy, some comfort, some entertainment, please consider supporting a solo creator on Patreon. Link to that is in the show notes down below. The Stone Singer Chronicles art is by Peter Bartel. Thank you, Peter. There is a link to his website in the show notes. A special thanks to my wife, Jenna Noor, and my friend, Destructobot. Join the Stonesinger Chronicles Discord to get extra information about the show and officially earn your rank as the Mage of the Third Bond. Again, link to that in the show notes down below. Alright, and until next time.